0: For the Climate Discussion Nexus, I'm John Robson, and this is a readout video from our June 3rd Wednesday wake-up newsletter, which includes the surprising news that public transit is suddenly not progressive anymore. Apparently, buses have been revealed to be Petri dishes that spew carbon dioxide, at least if you believe the mayor of London, England. So, there's a little taste of what life would be like under the Green New Deal. Not only would we be poor, things would be absurd and contradictory. Not a good look. But let's not talk about that. Instead, I want to get to something out of China, which is not a pandemic, which is not geopolitical aggression, which is not the suppression of democracy, or burning a whole lot of coal while posing as a rising green power. Instead, it's a study that says that early humans in China had to adapt to climate instability in 1 million B.C., and they pulled it off. How, you ask? Well, not the way Victor Mature did it, by wrestling a triceratops. Instead, it seems that uh, our ancestors living in the Nihuan Basin faced a crisis to do with increasingly arid conditions, with extinctions, with changing patterns of plants and animals, and you'll never guess. They solved it through technological changes, through altering their behavior but also altering the kinds of tools that they used to meet the new challenges. And this story is remarkable for two reasons. First of all it once again shoots down the claim that climate was basically stable until the Nixon administration which is one of the most unhelpful as well as absurd canards in the whole debate about climate. And of course our ancestors weren't driving buses back then, and hence throwing climate out of whack. But the other point is that if they could adapt to climate change, it's absurd to say that if it happens to us, we'll just sit there stunned until we fall over dead. And climate does change, we better be ready for it. For instance, it turns out that Tibet used to be a lot warmer than it is now, and what's more, it's climate cycles in ways that seem to be driven by solar activity. And if you're looking for the deniers claiming that, talk to the trees, because it's ancient pollen collected by Chinese scientists that was used to reconstruct temperatures on the Tibetan plateau going back to about 10,000 years before the present. And what they found, and this shouldn't be surprising, though apparently it is, is that after the, at the end of the glaciation, climate warmed up to about 6,000 years ago, the Holocene climate optimum, and then it cooled, and it stayed relatively cool ever since, and that cooling trend has also seen a 500-year cycle that correlates well with indicators of solar activity which means of course that as the Sun has gone quiet we could be in for cooling in a few decades and if we are it's not going to be a good thing I promise you that but I also promise you we'll find ways to cope and speaking of historical climate change news of Australia evidently it did in the carnivorous kangaroo I mean, if anything's gonna make people like climate change It's a story like that, if you've ever seen a picture of one of these things, they are an Australian nightmare. And this study is super sensitive because it touches on this question whether the advent of human beings in Australia, as in North America, contributed to megafauna extinctions that happened around the same time. But I'll tell you frankly, anybody who found themselves face-to-face or face-to-chest with a seven-foot-high, 600-pound, meat-eating kangaroo would, in my view, have thought it needed to be dealt with firmly. However, the Canberra Times says no, climate did it in the outback with a temperature increase. And so once again we ask how is it possible 40,000 years ago, it's actually during the last glaciation around South Walker Creek and far beyond it, how is it possible that climate changed so dramatically that it didn't just do in these kangaroos, but about 13 major species seem to have vanished. The answer? It's pretty straightforward, actually. Climate is unstable. But if that's true, if climate has always been unstable, it's not legitimate to look at recent climate instability and say, ah, it's all human beings. Surely it's clear That climate can change in the present without human influence. It doesn't mean we shouldn't be looking for the human fingerprint, but it does mean that you cannot claim that everything that you see happening was necessarily caused by humans because without us everything would be stable. The historical record doesn't just fail to sustain that claim, it absolutely and decisively refutes it. And there's more. It's amazing what you learn from looking at the historical record with a hat tipped to CO2 science. There's a new study of hurricane frequency intensity near what is now Charleston, South Carolina from about 1670 to 1850 and once again this obviously predates human generation of CO2. It also predates modern aircraft and satellite tracking methods and so it has required a certain amount of ingenuity to try to figure out how often hurricanes made landfall and how hard they hit when they did. Having combined data from previous studies and made the best estimates they can the scientists come up with a finding that is somewhat surprising or at least it's surprising if you believe the conventional wisdom it turns out that from the 17th into the 19th century hurricanes were more frequent than they are now and as far as can be determined they were also more intense why is that surprising it wouldn't be if you've read the newsletter because we have mentioned it before but The reason it's surprising is that we keep hearing that climate change is causing extreme weather to increase. And the problem with this claim is that it might stimulate alarm, but it doesn't fit the facts. Any more than a piece that just ran in McLean saying that bugs have vanished and that climate change has played a huge role. It's really quite a strange piece. It says that there are no ants, there are no bees, there are no grasshoppers, there are no ladybugs. That worldwide there's this insectageddon. And some people have claimed that there are declines in insect populations and others have said it's not nearly that clear. But the author of this piece says, I am now 48 years old and there are no bugs in my world. I didn't realize it until the spring. I had assumed the unusual cold was to blame. (laughs) The unusual cold due to global warming. But then he goes on to say that he can't remember the last time he swatted a horsefly and there are no ants in his backyard. Well, you know what? Go look in your own backyard. I know anecdotal evidence has its limits, but honest to goodness, spring is here, temperatures are rising, and the mosquitoes are swarming. But if you say, oh no, it's terrible and climate did it? you know, the editor just says, print. It's it's remarkable what finds its way into newspapers and magazines and onto the television these days, provided you say, oh, and it's climate change and it's our fault. It's also remarkable what doesn't get attention. Uh, Rex Murphy in the National Post just issued a cri de coeur on behalf of his home province of Newfoundland and Labrador, which fell on the same deaf ears he denounces. As you well, may well imagine, Newfoundland is facing a fiscal crisis as well as a health crisis for all kinds of reasons, recent and longstanding, and its premier begged Ottawa to help its crumbling offshore oil industry, which you may remember just a few decades ago, people said, hooray, Newfoundland is saved from have-not status, the young people will return, its dignity will be restored. And basically, the answer from Ottawa was, you know, drop dead and float away. They said, if you stop emitting carbon by 2050, we might. Which, since you're an oil industry, is going to make life difficult. As your ex Murphy says, well, Newfoundland may not be emitting carbon by 2050 because the province is going to collapse. But Ottawa's just not concerned. Just as it doesn't seem to be concerned about what's happened to the Alberta industry. And once again, you're getting a bit of a taste of what the Green New Deal would be like. Governments that simply regard the collapse of the economy as a price that is not merely well worth paying, but easy to pay. And it's not. And we're gonna find this out, among other things, as governments find themselves desperately short of revenue in the face of massive new spending. Oh, and here's something else from the newsletter. On ABC Radio, that's the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, some guy asked why nothing had been done about climate change. To which Eric Worrell What's Up With That replied rather tartly, they have, it just didn't work. And I think that's a very instructive exchange because it illuminates the gulf that exists on all kinds of public policy issues between people who think that life is easy, that anything can happen if we just wish for it, and that therefore if something bad happens, it's because somebody wanted it to happen or at the very least didn't want the good thing to happen, and people on the other side who think that reality is complicated, that good intentions don't get the job done, and that you need sound methods. And when it comes to the environment, of course, people have done a whole lot since the first Earth Day. And it's true, they started with good intentions. They saw that famous Apollo 8 Earthrise photo and were struck by some version of the insight that's now habitually expressed as there is no planet B. But then they started to think of ways to clean up the air, to get poison out of the water, to restrict use of toxic chemicals, to protect not just parks but entire ecosystems. Generally speaking, we've done wonders in the advanced world over the last 60 or 70 years. Not enough, perhaps, but a whole lot. It's also true that elsewhere progress has been slower or even absent. The air in Chinese cities, like the plastic in a lot of Asian rivers, is far worse now than it was when the air of Los Angeles was a stock source of bleak humor in the mid-20th century. But that's because they lack the resources, and in many cases, they lack democratic government that enables people to demand that something be done. But you know, in February 2020, at a protest in Bristol in the UK, Greta Thunberg said, quote, I will not be silenced while the world is on fire, will you? This emergency is being completely ignored by the politicians, the media, and those in power, end quote. Can somebody tell me where to find a politician of any stripe who's ignoring climate change? Now you might say, oh, they've been quick to make promises, and not so quick to keep them, which I would reply is not because of anything special about climate. Or rather, it's not because politicians don't tend to say crowd-pleasing things and then be reluctant to deliver if it's going to cause pain. It's because, as we noted in our videos on why the Paris Accord is doomed, there are very few things that governments can do to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, or even slow their rate of growth dramatically, that will achieve much of anything And whatever they do will impose growing costs that will quickly become horrendous. What's more, if we were to reach our Paris targets, if everybody was to reach them, and even the coronavirus lockdown has shown us how difficult it is to cut emissions that dramatically, the alarmist models say it'll make virtually no difference. Despite which, despite which it's not true to say that nothing has been done. Governments have spent tens of billions of dollars on research. They've... Brought in carbon pricing schemes, they've invested massive amounts of money in alternative energy. They have been hyperactive here, not just rhetorically, but also in policy terms. And if the results have been tremendously disappointing, as Eric Worrell says, the reason is it's hard. It, you just can't get by without energy, and most forms of energy are unreliable and other than fossil fuels and the one that we really probably could rely on, nuclear, is hugely unpopular with the people who demand that we cut greenhouse gas emissions. So the proper question is, why is it so hard to do the things that the alarmists say we need to do, and why won't they do the things that might actually work at acceptable cost? Okay, that's a pretty deep dive into this week's newsletter. But I do also want to mention that Our 1919 or 2019 quiz continues, and having taken a look at temperature comparisons across the country, we're now looking at precipitation. It's another major feature of climate, and it's particularly relevant because of all these claims that extreme weather's been increasing. So this week, we did two lines from Halifax. And if the doomsayers are right about extreme weather, it should be easy to tell which one is 1919, back when things were stable and normal and dependable and which one is 2019 after we wrecked the climate by emitting all that co2 from our buses and our suvs and our factories and everything else if you can't tell maybe take another look at those extreme weather claims also remind you that i have a new colleague Kiara, who's going to be doing short takes based on our blog items as well as our videos so stay tuned for that and Visit our website. If you're not already a subscriber, that's climatediscussionnexus.com. Sign up for the newsletter. Check out our videos, which you can also find on YouTube at ClimateDN. And we know times are tough. The future's uncertain. The lockdown's affected the economy badly. But if you think it's no time for politicians to ignore practicalities and pile on with more bad policy based on shaky science, go to our donate page if you're not already a backer. Make a pledge, big or small, one time or monthly. It all helps enormously at our end the climate discussion nexus I'm John Robson